Hey, everybody. <laughs> now, when I say everybody, I'm not talking about everybody that's here with me at our Banksmill campus, but I'm also talking about everybody that's over at our West campus, everybody that's up at our Ridge campus, and everybody that is connecting uh, with us online. Uh, I'm glad you're here wherever here happens to be for you today. And as you can see, we are continuing in this journey through the Bible that we're calling one big story. And as we're walking through the Bible, we're actually starting to discover that the Bible is not just a collection of ancient stories about God, but the Bible is actually the story of God. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells one continuous story, the story of God's redemptive love and of His passionate pursuit of prodigal people like me and like you. And, and my hope is that as we're going through this journey that you're starting to see that the Bible is not just a record of how God has worked in the past, but it's a picture of how God is continuing to work in our present and in our future, that our individual life stories are actually part of God's bigger story. And our life really only works really only makes sense when we connect our story to his stories. I think it was uh, Bertrand Russell, the British mathematician and celebrated atheist of the 20th century, who once said, unless you assume the existence of God, the question of purpose is meaningless. And I agree with that. If there's nothing bigger, if there is no God, then there really can be no bigger purpose to our lives than just our lives themselves. But, but I would take that a step further. I would say that it's not just the existence of God that gives our lives purposes. I would say that it is connecting with that God in which our true purposes can be found. We see that pretty clearly articulated in the words of the Apostle Paul as they were recorded in Acts chapter 17. Notice what Paul said. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, God is not just a force that created everything but that he continues to be the Lord of everything. He's still engaged. He's still working and moving in and through everything in heaven and on earth. And then Paul says, because of that, here's how that affects us. He says, for now, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. In other words, our stories connect to his story. I think the other thing that I hope you're starting to see is that the Bible not only reveals God's story to us, but it reveals God's heart for us. That every page of the Bible, every story we look at in the Bible, shows a picture of God's redemptive love for every one of us. And what we're going to do today is we're going to see that redemptive love in one of the most unusual places in the entire Bible. We're going to look at the story of the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with it. If you're old, you remember the movie with Charlton Heston. If you're younger, you remember the Disney Prince of Egypt movie. But we're all familiar with that story. But what you may not recognize about this story 
is that it is even in the story of God's law, we see an expression of God's love. God's law to us expresses His love for us. Now, you may remember when we left off, God had started putting in place a plan and a process to restore what Adam and Eve had broken in the garden and to redeem and restore our relationship as human beings with Him. And so, God started this process by making some promises to a nobody from nowhere named Abraham. And one of those promises is that Abraham would become the father of a great nation, a huge nation, and through that nation, a worldwide redeemer would come and once and for all break the power of sin and death in our lives. But when we left Abe, he was fast approaching 99 years of age. His wife, Sarah, was about 95, and they didn't even have the first child, let alone a whole brood of children through which a mighty nation could develop. In fact, last time we saw Abe, he was standing outside of his tent, looking up in the stars and choosing to believe by faith that even though he didn't even have a single child at his old age, that somehow God would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And if you know the rest of the story, you know God, as he always is, is faithful. Eventually, Abraham and his wife Sarah would have a son. Anybody know the name of that son? If you do, just shout it out. The child of promise is... Isaac, very good. These people up front, they know their Bible. They get gold stars. Yeah, Isaac. Now, it's not a nation, but you got to start somewhere. You got to start with one. Eventually, Isaac would have two sons, Jacob and Esau. One of those sons, Jacob, who would eventually have his name changed to Israel. Now, Jacob was prolific because he had 12 sons. Still not a nation, but a pretty good start. We're trending in the right direction. Unfortunately, 11 of those sons ganged up against one of those sons, the son named Joseph. They were jealous of him because his dad gave him a really cool multicolored coat. So they threw him in a pit, then sold him into slavery into the land of Egypt. But because God is writing the story, God is miraculously able to take what they meant for evil and bring good out of it, because Joseph eventually ends up as the prime minister of Egypt, the greatest nation on the world at that point. And then a famine hits throughout all the land. And so Joseph sends an email to his 11 brothers and their wives and their children and says, come to Egypt because there's plenty of food here. So the whole passel of Abraham's children and grandchildren, they moved to Egypt. And when they got there, there must have been something in the water because they started multiplying like rabbits. All of a sudden, there are 100, then there are 1,000, then there are 10,000, then there are 100,000. They get to a million or more people. At some point, there's so many of them that people come to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, we got to do something about these Hebrews. There's too many of them. There's eventually, if we don't do something, there's going to be more Hebrews than there are Egyptians. We got to do something about these immigrants. And so Pharaoh, with one stroke of the pen, enslaved the entire children of Abraham. All a million people like that went into slavery, and they were slaves for 400 years. Don't go past that too quickly. 400 years. 
That's almost twice as long as America has been a country. Imagine being one of these descendants of Abraham in Egypt. All you've ever known, all your parents, your grandparents, your great, 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 grandparents, all you have ever known as a people is slavery. Maybe every now and then you hear stories about this ancient relative named Abraham that God had promised would turn his descendants into a great nation and bless the whole world. But you're thinking, either that's a myth from the old days, or if that was ever God's plan, he's gone a different direction now. And then, as almost all hope was lost, when the night was its darkest, out of the desert steps a hero, a deliverer, a man by the name of what? Moses, right? And you know the movie, right? Moses goes right up to Pharaoh, and let's say it together. What did he say? Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you must be out your mind. Our whole economy as a nation is built on slavery, and your people are the slaves. If I let them go, this whole thing is going to collapse on itself. I'm Pharaoh. I am a God, and I don't have to do anything. Pharaoh smirks. The descendants of Abraham mourn, and God smiles because he knows he's about to show up and show off. And through miraculous power, he sends plague after plague that decimates the Egyptian economy. And finally, it gets so bad that Pharaoh says, go, take your children and go. While you're going, if you want our gold and silver, take it with you because your God is so much more powerful than any God we have in Egypt. And there, thousands of years after the promise was made to Abraham, his descendants in the millions walk out of Egypt free and rich and headed for the promised land. And about three weeks into their journey across the wilderness, God takes them on a little side trip to a mountain called Sinai. And while they're there, Moses goes up on the mountain and God descends down to the mountain and will, for the first time in 400 years, speak to his people. Speak to his chosen people. And what he does is he gives them the Ten Commandments. The laws, the guidelines, the ways that they are to live their lives as part of his family. And while this is one of the most well-known stories of the entire Bible, I am convinced that it is this part of the story that has created one of the biggest misconceptions about God. This number one misconception about God, I think, comes out of this story. I think most of us would agree that for us as humans, the assumption about God is that in order to be acceptable to God, I have to modify my behavior. I must do some things differently to be acceptable to God. God is good. I'm not that good. I need to get gooder so I can get to God, right? I mean, that's the foundation of every religion in the world, right? Think about it. Every religion in the world is about behavior modification, following a set of rules, doing good things, doing these certain rules or laws in order to be acceptable to God. That's just what people believe. You go out on the street today and ask people, how does someone get to heaven? 
number one answer. 80% of the people will answer that question with, be a good person. Do good things. But if there's ever been a clear message in the Bible, the obvious message of God's story, it is the exact opposite. What the Bible teaches is I can't ever be good enough to be acceptable to God. And so God comes to me. God is so amazingly good. I can't be good enough. God comes to me and does for me what I would never be able to do for myself. So the question is, if the rules, the laws of God are not about acceptance from God, then why would God give us rules in the first place? Why are there these commandments? What is the purpose of God's law if it's not about making me acceptable to God? Well, that's the question I want us to wrestle to the ground today. I want us to look at the purpose of God's law. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's the second book, Genesis, Exodus, and go to chapter 20, which by the way, that's where the Ten Commandments are right? If you've ever wondered where the Ten Commandments written, it's Exodus chapter 20. That right there was worth getting up an hour early and coming on a rainy day to, to get that, right? It's Exodus chapter 20. And as we walk through this part of the story, we see three reasons, three purposes for God's law. You might want to write them down, your phone, your note, your journal. Number one, God gives us His law to confirm God's love, not as a condition of it. God gives us His law as confirmation of His love for us, not as a condition of His love for us. Maybe I should put it this way. God gives us His law because we are a part of His family, not so that we can become a part of His family. All rules assume a relationship. If, if there are rules in play, there's some form of agreed-upon relationship ahead of time. It's true in every area of your life. How many of you have kids living in your home? You got underage kids living? Yeah, many of you. How many of you have rules for those kids who live in your home, right? Now, let me ask you, do your kids have rules because they are your kids? Or do they have rules so that they can become your kids? You give them the rules because they are in your family. They are your kids. You don't give rules to the neighbor's kid, although we all know kids in the neighborhood we'd like to give some rules to, right? Like your own restrictions, son. As long as our family lives in this home, you can't come out the house. You just stay in your house. If we ever move away, you'll be off for sure. You don't do that. You don't call up your neighbor and say, hey, man, can I talk to your daughter for a minute? She gets on the phone. You go, have you done your homework? What are you doing up so late? Right? Oh, why? Turn that TV off, right? We don't give rules to our neighbor's kids because they're not in the family. And this is huge. Don't miss. This is a huge part of this story. Before God ever gave the first law to the children of Abraham, he makes it clear that he has already chosen them to be in his family. Let's take an imaginary trip to the foot of Mount Sinai, 1300 B.C. There's a million-plus Israelites camped at the base. God is coming down and for the first time in 400 years is going to speak to his children. And notice the first words out of his mouth. 
Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. This is the preamble to the Ten Commandments. It says, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. You see that? He didn't say, I'm a God. He didn't even say, I'm the God. He didn't say, I'm potentially your God if you do the things I want you to. He said, I'm already your God. Even before you know what the rules are, even before you ever have a chance to keep or break any of my rules, you are in the family. And then, as if to emphasize the point, look at what he says the rest of the verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What's he doing there? He's reminding them of what he had just done three weeks prior, that he had showed up out of nowhere and freed them from the most powerful, on their behalf, he brought the most powerful nation on the planet to its knees, not because they were following the rules. They didn't even know what the rules are. Not because they were worshiping him and honoring him with their lives. They didn't even know his name, let alone how to worship him. My point is this. God was their rescuer before he became their lawgiver. And the same is true for us. All they had to do was trust in his protection. All they had to do was trust him. When God said, hey, you remember three weeks ago when I busted you out of slavery after 400 years? When they thought about how God had freed them from Egypt, they did not think about the first nine plagues because none of those worked. None of those first nine plagues caused Pharaoh to relent. It was that 10th plague, that plague with the death angel that passed over. You remember that? And, and it caused the death of the firstborn male child of every human family, every animal family. But you remember Moses has said to them, God wants you tonight, when you kill a lamb to roast for supper, I want you to take some of the blood of that lamb and mark the doorpost of your home. Just put some of the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. That all sounds strange to us because we don't go out in the backyard and kill animals to eat our supper. Uh, some of us get our eggs that way because they're too expensive at the store, but I'm pretty sure you're not slaughtering lambs in your backyard. But for them, this was an, kind of a weekly occurrence. It was not unusual. Kill a lamb, cook it, have a meal together as a family. But they'd never done this blood on the door. They'd never messed with the blood. And so all of a sudden, they're like, well, what difference is this going to make? Trust me. Yeah, but I don't understand how blood on the... Trust me. And that night, the death angel passed over. And every family, every Israelite who stayed in that home and stayed under the cover and protection of that blood was saved from death. Trust me, that's all God was asking them to do. And it's all he's asking us to do today. One of those descendants of Abraham by the name of the Apostle Paul would write these words in Romans chapter 4. Clearly, obviously, it is so obvious that God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by what? By faith, by trusting. And see, God knew what every good parent knows. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. 
When you try to enforce rules when there's no established, trusting, loving relationship, it's going to lead to rebellion. But rules in the context of an already existing love relationship brings trust because it brings peace and comfort. I I said this last week. I'm going to say it again this week because it's all the same story and all the same message. Obedience to God's law is not the route to a relationship with Him. It is the result of a relationship that already exists. The purpose of God's law is to confirm His love to us, not as some sort of condition to it. Number two, write this down. The second purpose of God's law is to reveal God's values. To reveal God's values. Because that's what rules do, right? Rules reflect values. That's true whether you're talking about a business or a family or a country. The laws you enforce are a picture of what is important, what you value. That's why you're so bent out of shape emotionally about politics. That's why you get all fired up and have to take blood pressure medicine from watching the political process, because you intuitively know whoever wins elections gets to make the laws. And you know they will either make laws that reflect your values or reject your values, because that's what rules do, and that's what God's rules do. God's rules are an expression of His values, of what's important to Him. It's amazing if you look at the Ten Commandments through that lens of values, what you can tell about what matters to God. In fact, let's just do that. Let's walk through the Ten Commandments right now and see what they have to tell us about the things God values. Let's start with the the first three commandments. They're found in verses 3 through 7. Number one, you must have no other God before me. Two, you must not make yourself an idol of any kind. And three, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What do those three rules all have in common? They are all about the quality of our relationship with God. They're all about how we relate to God. Why? Because God values a relationship with us, and He doesn't want anything to get in the way. He doesn't want anything to come between Him and us. He doesn't want us to chase after things that are not going to satisfy like He can. That's a value God has of his, our relationship with Him. Let's look at the fourth commandment. It's in verse 8. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you read the rest of that verse, what you'll see is it means six days a week you can work, but one day a week you need to rest. Rest your body, rest your mind, rest your emotions. It is a day of rest. Now, what does that tell us about what God values? It tells us that God values us, that He created us, and He knows you can't go seven days a week 365 days a year. You can do it for a while, but if you don't take breaks, if you don't rest your mind, your emotions, you're going to burn out. You're going to flame out. God loves us, and He values us, and He wants us to be healthy. He wants us to be balanced in our lives. That's why years later, after a group of obsessive law keepers had added all kind of extra rules about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, Jesus gets up in their grill and says, you idiots, man was not made to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given as a gift 
to man. And and it's not just the, the fourth commandment, but really look at all of God's laws. Look at all of the laws that God gave through Moses. They're all really about our benefit, the health of our bodies and our minds. Read the rest of Exodus and read the book of Leviticus sometime. That's the very next book. And look at all the dietary laws that God gives the nation of Israel. You can eat this, don't eat that. It kind of looks weird to us. And while the New Testament makes clear, we do not have to follow um, the kosher eating laws. But can I tell you this? If you ate that way, you'd be the healthiest person in the church, right? Before anybody knew anything about cholesterol and bottom feeding, why? Because God wants, he values us. You also see laws about, you know, don't touch dead things. And if you touch a dead thing, make sure you purify yourself with water. And if somebody's sick, they need to be separated from everybody else. Understand, those laws were given before. There's no modern medicine. Nobody knows anything about germs and hygiene and, and infectious disease and six feet and all that stuff we've been living through. And yet God gives these laws because he values us. Now let's look at the last six. By the way, these are the ones you know. If I'd have made you stand up and say all the commandments you know, I guarantee the ones you know were from this list, the final six, found in verses 12 through 17. Here they go. Honor your father and mother. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. And you must not covet or lust after things that aren't yours. What do all of those rules tell us about what God values? He values our relationships with each other, how we get along with each other. Not committing murder is pretty good for relational health, isn't it? (laughs) Not uh, committing adultery is pretty helpful for a good marriage. God values the quality of our relationships with each other. So that's why when you look at the Ten Commandments, through the lens of value, it's so clear about what's most important to God. That's why when Jesus was asked by the lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't hesitate. He didn't have to think. He didn't have to go through the list in his head. He said, that's simple. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because that's the value that God places on his law. See, God's law is not about limiting your freedom It's about keeping us focused on the things that matter most. And then finally, number three, the third purpose of God's law is to reveal our need for grace and forgiveness. To reveal our need for grace and forgiveness. See, God's law not only reveals God's love for us, His acceptance of us, God's priorities, but His law also reveals my deepest need. Again, look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Now think about this. These words were not written by some guy with morally weak character who was just trying to make excuses for why he couldn't do the right thing. These words were written by a guy who had spent the whole first half of his adult life obsessively trying to meet every law of God. Paul was a Pharisee. 
He was one of these obsessive law followers. He'd spent his whole life. If anybody could get a passing score on the law, it's Paul. And yet Paul says, when I look in the law, I don't see how good I'm doing. I see how far I am away from God. Let me ask you this. How you doing keeping God's law? I mean, I'm not even talking about the hundreds of them that are in the whole law. Just the top ten. How you doing? Anybody in here got a hundred? Anybody here never broken one of the ten commandments? Don't raise your hand because you'll be guilty of lying right there. You'll break your perfect streak, right? And then if you think that's, maybe you think you've done really well, Jesus makes it even harder because Jesus says if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder. If you lust after someone, you've already committed murder adultery. See, when I look at God's law, I don't see how good I am. I see how broken I am and how desperately I need a Savior. That's what it is. But here's the great news. God has provided. Even while God, while He's in the process of giving the nation of Israel the law, this is how you are to live. He's already provided for their disobedience. He's already provided for a way that when they break the law, they can still be restored. This is interesting, and it's very easy to miss when you read about it. God gives the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, and then immediately, before they ever even have a chance to keep or break the law, soon as they get them, it's like the backside of those big stone tablets that you saw Charlton Heston care. It's like if you turn them over, here's the 10, and then on the backside, here's what to do when you break the law. And it's like, wait a minute. We haven't even had a chance to keep the law. God says, yeah, I've already factored in your failure. Look at verse 24. God says, by the way, take these laws and go ahead and build for me an altar made of earth and offer your sacrifices to me. What are sacrifices? It's the payment required for breaking the law. God's like, I'm already, I already know you can't keep them, but I've already made provision for you. And by setting up this sacrificial system, God was doing three things. One, he was helping them remember the slaughtering of that animal and the putting the blood on the doorpost of how all they had to do was trust. He's reminding them of that. But he's also causing them to have to look weakly at the cost of disobedience. Sin always leads to death. And so every time they slit the throat of that goat or that lamb or broke the neck of that dove, they would be reminded of the cost of their disobedience. And then thirdly, he was foreshadowing for them the day when the true spotless lamb of God would once and for all shed his blood on Calvary's cross to open the door for anyone and everyone to sit protected under that blood. See, the same God, this is your takeaway, the same God who, as Forrest Gump would say, for no particular reason at all, would show up and rescue and free the nation of Israel from bondage in Egypt, not because of what they had done, but because of who he was. He's offering you that same opportunity today. 
wherever you've been, whatever you've done, God is offering you, choose today. Trust me or keep trying to earn your way to me. Close with this last verse, Romans chapter 6. This is the great news. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. The Son has set you free. You are free indeed. What will you do, church, with that freedom? Would you pray with me? Well, I thank you, Jesus, for just that reminder that even in this part of the story that is about law and order and rules, it's still about your love. It's still about your passionate pursuit of prodigals like me. It's still about your redemption and doing for me what I can't do for myself. So, Father, help us as we leave here today to not just walk out in the rain that is falling, but to walk out covered in the covenant of your blood. Live in the hope that freedom brings so that those in bondage around us would see that hope and cry out to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.